Welcome to episode 21 of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. So, <laughs> Dunya walked in today with a brand new hairdo, brand new cut, brand new color. I hate to like, you know, whatever, but were you jealous of my haircut? <laughs> well, I do feel like I am being jealous of your damn haircut. But you guys, do you ever feel like somebody, you need a friend that pushes you to do something? And I've been, Zaina, I've been wanting to get yeah, my you've haircut. Been, you've been telling me about So that. who's really the jealous one, to be <laughs> honest? So really, I've been wanting to get the haircut. I seen Zaina's hair and it just looked nice and healthy. And you guys, my hair on the bottom I don't know how to explain it. It was no, like, I know. all over the place. I know, you know how it's like, like that. So, you know, I was like, let me go get a haircut. Of course, I always have to one-up Zayna. <laughs> she's blonde, you guys. Like, blonde straight up bottom. blonde. I like it, you guys. I really love it. Like, my stylist, she's amazing. Honestly, yeah. I like want to give her all credit. I just have to get used to the color. I love it, but then yeah. it's like, I have to get used it to is, it. It is. It's it's like a change. It's and definitely a change. I mean, you've always been darker brown, right? Well, yeah, because we're out of I always like, like looking yeah. darker and everything. I always am jealous of the people who can do like the extreme, like, full blonde like you it's like an ombre ombre or what is it right now balayage i don't know what they call it yeah Yeah, but i do see a lot of girls roots to tips of your hair like blonde like i cannot do that drastic of a change and you know what this is weird but do you feel like well not for you zana because your hair is still dark but i feel like since i went lighter now my outfits have to change like I don't know how to explain it. Like, I can't wear light-colored shirts, if that makes sense. Because I don't know how to explain it. You don't know because it like, really clash? Or? Yes, I feel like it clashes. I feel like it just looks too washed out. Like, I'm just looking, oh, okay. like, too washed out. Like, I don't like it at all, if that makes uh, sense. Like, once I dyed my hair... You're, like, looking at me like, no, what is she I'm talking trying, about? I'm, like, analyzing it now because I'm, like, trying Wait. to figure out what you mean. You're wearing... Well, no, like I'm wearing colors, black and gray. Yeah. yeah, it's like all over the place, this shirt that I'm wearing. But I don't know. I I, I have to now get used to it. <laughs> But she better look at me. But you know what I've been really jealous of? I mean, like, Michelle, it looks really great on these girls. They do, like, extremely short. Like, I have a cousin who just, her hair was, like, up to her butt. She chopped it off. Like, it's, like, below her ears now. And she's, like, rocking it. And I'm, like, I'm so jealous of that. I've done it once. I wish I could pull it off. You went that short? Where it was, like, lower above my shoulders. Okay, no, girl. You're, like, jawline. I'm not trying to look like Dora the Explorer. I don't think it would look good on me, but I think on other people it does. I don't think it would look good on me either, but, like, I wish. Look, Jackie, our last guest. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't pull that off. She looked so good. Yeah. Like that type of short hair. Me, no way. I just feel like, no, it would just not. Me, I don't think I would be able to, but I wish I could just because it's so much easier. Yeah, it is. It honestly is. I'm just so sick of straining and curling. And And I'm done with coloring. Like, I really am done with coloring. I want. I'm just done being a woman trying to look good for the world. (laughs) But I'm actually not. But I I don't know. She says that she's wearing a face full of makeup. (laughs) I do not. <laughs> I'm like literally only wearing like my blush. I do not have time for makeup I have, anymore. I'm the one who like sat there and baked and put concealer and put all that shit. I don't on have time for that. Like, I'm sorry. Like blush is the most that I'll do. I love primers. But you have really good skin. Because I'm telling you guys, get on those hydrofacials if you do not want to put any more makeup on. I wish. What's the difference between derma infusion and hydro? Because I did derma I infusion. What, I don't and know it was, what that is. It's the same thing. It has like the tip that sucks Oh, that's the, like, uh, gosh, there's a different term for it, Dana. I don't know if it's derma infusion. Maybe your place called know. it that no our, like oh god what is it called now i'm like literally on the spot i can't think of it you guys but there is one that takes off the dead skin which you did zayna that's derma planning derma abrasion no what <laughs> wait yes it is derma planning is the one where they get the little scalping heavy derma planning is english your <laughs> it is it's one where they get the little scalpel thing like the razor thing and then they like they like that scrape. takes off the peach fuzz yeah that's no and planning. the dead skin yes and it does yeah. that too but Zena, it's also called dermabrasion because i used to do that but oh, then I, don't know. I got over it so you guys with hydrofacial why i love hydrofacials is because it really like 
it's a it's like a three-step pass, process and of course i'm not an esthetician so i'm totally like messing this up but all i know is because my eyes are closed i'm not looking in the mirror when they're doing this i just know that they clean my skin with a little mini facial then they take out all the gunk from my pores and after they take out the gunk from my pores like you know any dead skin any of that stuff like with their vacuum then after they do all that now my pores are clean what do they do they do it again with the vacuum but this time they insert like serums for my skin okay that's derma infusion is where they're, they're sucking this stuff out but it's also like i'm surprised they call it that because everybody calls it hydrofacials because it's my, an actual my machine. place has hydrofacials too i don't know we need to ask somebody because i don't know the difference we I'll do need my... a skin doctor on here i would yeah. love that yeah because i love talking all skin and yeah. i have like sunspots but the ladies like oh they're not sunspots but i know they're sunspots like i do want to talk to someone about my you guys skin. i had horrible skin like michelle your like, skin is awesome horrible right now, like i i hate when people like recommend things and they have perfect skin no i'm coming from like a place where i never want to leave my house Can we see it before and after photo I just said I don't want to leave my house. Do you think I was taking <laughs> selfies in my house with my skin? Girl. I just Because, like, Michelle, I can't imagine you with bad skin. Like just It was just this past two or so years that it's because it's been, you started taking I care stuck, of it. Yeah, and you guys, it is pricey, but, well, it's worth it. Everything's yeah, worth it. It's your face. It is your face, and that's, like, the first thing people yeah. see. I don't know about you guys. I just wasn't confident with acne on my skin. Again, teach their own. Some people don't care, and they rock yeah. it, and I wish I had that because then I would be saving $130 a month and not doing these facials. You do them every month? Once a month. You have she to. She told me six to eight weeks. And it's been... When you first start. Like oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Six, I mean, six yeah. weeks, yeah. I'm, I'm a little excessive. I like doing it like every four weeks. But yeah. But I mean, it's working for you, so... Alhamdulillah. Girl, you too. Your skin is good. You're so... I feel like my skin got worse when I moved to Chicago. I don't know if it's like the pollution, the air. I don't know what it is. But... So, no, that is true because when I started going to college and I went to college in the city, that's when my acne started flaring up. And I never had... You guys, I never... I don't know about you guys, but in, in high school, I never washed my face. I never cared. And if I did, it was like dial soap. Like, literally. And if my eyeliner was on point that day, I'd be sure not to wash off my eye makeup. That's how <laughs> bad my skincare routine was. But I never had not one pimple in high school. And that's yeah. like... I wish I had acne in high school because I can care less about how I look. And now as an adult, I wish I didn't have to worry about it. Right. But what was it? Oh, yeah. The point is when I started going to college and I went in the city, it's all pollution. It's all disgusting. Well, I don't really get like pimples or acne. It's just like dull. Look, little yeah, yeah, dullness, dull, the bumps, like, little yeah, tiny bumps. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll have someone on that can tell me what's going on. So with your face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's talk about our unfiltered advice. So what's this week's question? Okay. Dear Dunya and Zaina, I love your podcast and all it stands for. I've been thinking of starting a project of my own but lack the confidence to do so. How did the both of you decide to look past the possibility of failure and take the plunge? This one is interesting because, I okay, you're the one that approached me about let's just do... First of all, we didn't even ha have the idea of a podcast. No. You just had this idea. And I we just went from there, basically. Yeah, so I honestly been wanting to do something extra for like maybe maybe like three years. Like since I moved to Chicago, I wanted to do something extra because I felt like school, I was doing just school stuff. And then my internships were just internships. And now that I'm working, I have no like creative outlets. And I really did want something. And I we didn't really know each other that much. We mm -hmm. were just like Instagram friends, like, you know. We knew each, each other's other. families. We're from exactly. the same village and all that good stuff. But I knew that like, I had a feeling, and I was right about that, that you'd be a good partner just because I knew that, hey. like, we had similarities, but we also had, like, different Differences. personalities mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, but looking past the possibility of failure, it's always going to be there. are always going to fail? Yeah, like, even if you get a 9-to-5 job, there's still a possibility of you might get let go or the company might shut down. So there's always that possibility of failure. And I don't think you can, you know, stop you from doing what you want to do, but it's always going to be there. It is always going to be there. And I think, you know what I think what we really fear more so is what other people think. And 
when we did do this, we were like, what's the main point of this? Why are we doing this? And I felt like we each have gone through certain things in our lives that I just don't want other women to go through alone. And so we decided, like, let's just focus this mostly on women and how can we share their stories and everything. And I feel like when you start with a good intention and you stick to that intention, and if that's truly what you want to do and you really, really believe in it, then what anybody else says shouldn't matter at all. That's a good point. As long as you feel confident in the idea, and you feel confident that like what it is, you know, new opinion is going to work, then I mean, then I think like that's all you need. That's yeah. really all you need. That is. And I've, I also, there's a lot of trial and error, especially because we are doing a podcast. Like, I don't know what her, is her, did she, she mention her say, project? She just said a project. So whatever project it is, like for us, it deals with a lot of like technology with a lot of like, it's like a lot of things are out of our control. And I feel like sometimes in certain situations, everything's almost going to be out of your control. And that's okay. You just got to be able to really like hone in on like, is this what I really want to do? And if so, I'm going to stick it out. And there were times I felt like, Zena, this is not working out. And that between me and you, it was more so like just issues we that we had. Out, yeah. There was issues that we had and we felt so alone. And But alhamdulillah, I feel like we're doing good now. I feel like we are too. And I think like you were saying, do your research. Yes. Do your research because you need to know what it's going to take to succeed or to do good. You can't just like expect everything to fall into place because that's not how it is. So do your research. Um, yeah, and just connect with other people. That's, that's the number point. one thing. Yeah. Some people are going to close the door in your face, but there's going to be a lot many more other people that are going to literally help you step by step. And we've alhamdulillah had that. Like shout out again to this Muslim um, podcast. Like she was, she got on a Skype call with us. This Muslim like, girl, yeah. yeah, she got on a Skype call. She tried to help us everything. Like, and there's again like many other people. We've mentioned Pally Roots. We mentioned our engineer Ayman. We've had mentioned so people because i'm telling you guys they were so willing to help us like without a doubt so i think that's the most important thing is to connect with other people see who's doing kind of the same thing as you and see what they have to say they, there's a lot of insight there's a lot of information that they can give you a lot of advice that you might not know about also youtube is a big girl big youtube saved our lives yeah, so YouTube many times helps. you can youtube anything so like if it's a project where it's more on the creative side and you need that kind of help there are outlets um, if it's a public kind of project, I feel like have your people behind you and supporting you because that also helps, especially if it's a public project where you you're just out there yeah see this is a public project because like we asked opinions of our family yeah. and friends and we still do and we always mean they are always asking for feedback yeah, like you were on a group chat the other day with your sisters trying to figure something out like yeah so it's nice to have that outside like um, don't put everything all on you yeah it's how about that not everything's yes this is your idea yes this is what you want and everything but don't put everything on you because you are you're gonna get burned out really fast like oh, yeah zane and i sometimes feel burned out and we're like a partnership like i'm how, always burned out yeah like how do you have one <laughs> person doing everything you gotta yeah. have a couple people on your team let them help you but out when it comes to like building her confidence what do you suggest go for it i have for the longest been wanting to do something like this zena and i needed you to come into my life to like give me that push yeah. because i always feared like who am i to start something who am i to be the face of this or the voice of that but you are somebody you should feel like you are worthy to speak up about certain things especially if it's something that you really like i said believe in and you want to showcase then do it because everybody trust me we know everybody has an opinion not everybody's yeah. gonna agree with you and not everybody's gonna be on your team and that's okay because you should always focus on the good more so than the bad 
because you don't want to look back when you're older and think like, oh, I wish I did that. Oh, I wish I took that step. Oh, I wish I started this project or began that job or whatever. So my main thing is I don't want to look back when I'm 70 years old and think like I kind of wasted my life. You know what I mean? Like I wish I followed my dreams and did what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's like it's always like that saying better late than never. I get that. But honestly, I wish I did this like years ago. Imagine yeah. us like starting a podcast when nobody even knew what the heck a podcast was. Like it would be so interesting. I think we would have had more people on board to start their own podcast. I don't know, actually. I feel like what? people are... I don't know. I feel like people would have been like, oh, a po- what's a podcast? Because like a few years ago, I was like, I'm not listening to podcasts. I know, like, but I feel like people are like non-Arab, non-Muslims. There's so many podcasts and they're yeah, on that podcast. Right. And my coworkers used to always talk about it. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Imagine us starting this a while back, like doing our research, knowing what our goal is, and then doing our research as to how to like project oh, like our goal. like knowing what we know yeah. now back then. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, that would have been, been amazing. So if you have an amazing project that you are like hiding right now, girl, go for it do yeah. it honestly don't stop yourself the only person that's really stopping you is yourself oh that's absolutely it. and like Dunia was saying reach out to people who are in the same field or um are doing similar things because you know the worst they can do is say no absolutely you know what i mean that's the worst they can say it's like oh we don't want to help you and we've gotten that girl um but that's the worst that can happen yeah i agree and, you know who cares oh, but we do care about something which is what's going on in our country and i just don't i Okay, like I, I get when people say, no, you shouldn't be fearful. Like you, you got to show them these like mass shooters that you're not fearful. No, I'm sorry. I'm scared. I'm scared to freaking go to Walmart in my I own mean, country. Yeah, That's in crazy. The past month, there's been three mass shootings. I'm not talking about smaller shootings. I'm talking about mass shootings where multiple people have died. Um, and there's trip advisories in the U.S. warning travelers not to come here because of mass shootings. That's scary. It's scary and I don't like the way like it's so crazy to live in the same country that used to like showcase that other countries are dangerous and this and that. But like, no, we're kind of dangerous. It's like, so scary. You can't go shopping and not get shot at. And like, it's a, it's like mass shooting. That's crazy. What was the most recent one? Do you there know? There was one in Walmart. Yeah. There was one in El Paso, Texas. And then there was the one before that in California at the Garlic Festival. And it's just crazy. Like the Garlic Festival was a... Like, uh, family friendly event so many kids there so many kids that lost their life and it's like and walmart you don't think walmart. twice like you're trying to go run for your quick errand and stuff like that because i mean i'm not trying to you know shit on walmart i'm just saying in general like it's just scary to go out nowadays absolutely and if you don't need to go out it's kind of, and i know it's so bad to say like if you don't need to go out don't go out but i mean like if i call my husband and he doesn't answer like i said to, and i'm not a worrier like ask my mom i'm not someone who worries but now it's like I'm 20, I, my a bit more Monday cautious. through Friday job is like news. And so I'm being fed all this like violence every day and I'm seeing it and I'm seeing the possibility of what could happen. And it's like starting to like, how do you not me. desensitize yourself to that oh, when you I, hear it all the time? Cause you literally text me like, oh, we're covering this story. And it's like, whoa, that's yeah, like crazy. It, it is kind of, um, it's so bad to say, but when you work in news and like we get breaking news that there was like a shooting it's kind of like, oh, shit, now I have to, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's, and then when you go home, you think about like, oh my God, someone lost their life. But when you're in that moment, you're kind of thinking of just doing your job. But then when you come home, it really hits you that you just covered a story about somebody that lost their life. Yeah. That takes a toll on you. I remember a few months ago, there was a shooting uh, deputy was trying to like deliver a warrant and he was at a hotel and the guy shot him and like ran out the window. And I remember, you know, I work in a smaller smaller market so that was like big news and I remember just thinking like I was so stressed that whole day because I was like we have to cover this and I have to get reporters out there and we had a reporter go to the wrong hotel and I was just like super stressed out 
And then I got home and I was scrolling through Facebook and his picture popped up. And I think it was like a post from his wife or something. And I just started crying. I I was about to cry right now. I was crying. I'm I'm very sensitive. That's very sad. I'm like all day. Like I was stressed over like this Like you're the one covering it and you're stressing over it. Yeah. at the end of the day, this woman yeah. lost her husband. Wow. Yeah, and all day, like, I'm stressing out over, like, the technical aspects of it. You know what I mean? I'm yelling at reporters because they were into the wrong place and whatever. And then you sit back and, like, this is someone's life. Like, it's scary. And I think sometimes we do. Like, I don't want to say we're desensitized to it, but it just happens so often that we forget that these are actual people. When they say 30 people lost their lives, these are 30, 30 mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, cousins, friends that lost their actual life. Like, somebody's going to go home right now, get a text or get a call from the police and saying hey your dad was just caught in this mass shooting he just passed it's away how do you so crazy and it's it's scary to think about and you know it's it sucks because our grandparents and our parents came to this country to build safer lives for us and give us safer lives and like we're not getting that no it's honestly really depressing but to switch it over i i mean just inshallah for everybody yeah, i really just be really vigilant be careful of your surroundings um and be kinder to one another yeah. really be kinder to one another you don't know what I, I feel like the, you guys i feel like judgment day is coming like this it's is so like there's crazy. all these signs it's really scary like i like everything's like normal like now all these people killings dying like i don't know i it's, i just it's scary it's not the world that i envisioned for myself when i became an adult at all but um, again, we really just hope that you guys stay safe, that our family stays safe. Um, all of our prayers and eyes are always answered on behalf of our family. And I really hope you guys had a good Eid. Um, yes. It just passed. And it's just like, I don't know, I love the Eid. I love seeing family. I love seeing friends. And it's just that one day out of the year where everybody's off and we do get to actually yeah, hang well, actually, out. Actually, this was the first Eid in years that, you're that off. I had off. Yeah. That I had off, and but my husband had to go to work. My mm-hmm. mother-in-law went to work. My brother-in-law was at work. Everyone was at work. So now me. it's opposite of you. Yeah, but like I had like the afternoon, like the morning to afternoon, and my husband came home at like five or four o'clock, and you know we did dinner and stuff like that. But it's still not like Eid yet. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it didn't like it didn't it, feel like Eid this year. For me, it always feels like Eid because our family we always always have to go to the yeah. gym and pray. You well, we really go to Toyota Park. Yeah, and we have a big family, and we still like, we all obviously live close to each other and things yeah. like that. So yeah, we're gonna That's always how it is in feel Florida it. For me. Yeah, it would have yeah. felt like that but yeah so let's introduce our guest for this week's episode which is sara bawani she's a clinical social worker she's a writer a published poet she's also a graduate of the university of texas at austin so sara received her master's degree in social work and her bachelor's degree in biology and islamic studies which is like amazing yes this girl has a great resume um and she also currently works at the muslim community center for human services in fort worth which is in texas she provides free mental health counseling and mental health education to the community and i think that's like such an amazing occupation to have to be able to help out your community by giving out free services like that honestly when we recorded the interview part of the episode i felt like i was in a therapy therapy session yes session because like she was honestly just like spilling like such inspiration and and i just felt like honestly so much better after that yeah and i think recently she also said now she serves on the board of face which is f-a-c-e um and it stands for facing abuse in community environments so it's an actually it's an organization that works with spiritual abuse in the muslim community and this is how i actually met her through her book she first published her book which is called wholehearted so it's a collection of poetry and pose and you can find it on amazon the book why i love it honestly Zaina, it's so good because it like talks about like identity 
mental health, domestic violence, femininity, relationships, spirituality. Girl, the list goes on and on. And I like how she also talks about like forgiveness and like a variety of other like social justice issues. And she's been featured in a lot of things too. So she's been on TEDx. I can never go on stage and talk like that. I am no, I can't even <laughs> do this without not, stumbling. I am not qualified for that. But she's you, so well spoken. And like, I don't know, she's just like, I was so like soothed when she was talking to me. She's very soothing. Yeah, Her like, voice I just very... felt like so at ease. Um, she knows what she's talking about. She does. And I feel like we have had um, guests from the other side of mental health where they've like, they were very vulnerable and very open. And I really appreciate them. They really talked about what they went through. But now it's very interesting to see somebody from the other side, which is an actual therapist. And she's Muslim too. So it really helps because this is somebody that understands our cultural and religious background. So she can provide us the help that we need without us feeling like, okay, this therapist is not understanding me. me. Yeah. yeah, she does. So really hope you guys enjoy this episode make sure you guys stick around for our unfiltered afterthoughts we like to always just digest and talk about the episode and how we felt about it so let's dive in let's do it Before we dive into today's episode, we would love to shout out our sponsor, which is FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. Guys, you're getting $200 worth of products for only $49.99. Basically, many of the products cost more than the entire box itself, which is crazy, honestly. And you're getting things in beauty, lifestyle, fitness, home, and wellness. So it covers like an entire spectrum of your life. Can I say that I love my Kate Spade uh, lunchbox that I use every day now? What I like about it is you're getting like full-size products. So you're getting like the entire experience of like what that product really is. Because I feel like most products take time for you to start noticing a difference. So um, miss me with the samples. I really want the full size. Let me really indulge in this. I love it. Because you guys, self-care is self-love. And that's how much we want to try to promote it. Because it's all around wellness. Yeah, and another great point of this uh, of this subscription box is that you can customize it. So you're getting products that they know you're going to like. Basically, you feel like it's your birthday four times a year. Yes. Don't you? It's just like a surprise. Like, oh, hey, it's fall. And then you receive your fall box. I absolutely, truly and love it. And it's like a little surprise in the mail. Like, yeah, you know it's coming, but then it comes and you're like, oh, shoot, these products are incredible. And you know our podcast is all about supporting women. So what I love about FabFitFun is they try to get all these products from mostly female-founded companies. And so many of the products are from female-founded companies. And each season, FabFitFun actually partners with a nonprofit to raise funds and awareness. So not only are you treating yourself, but you're also helping others. That's incredible. I did not know that. But what I also really love about this subscription box is that every season I'm discovering products that I end up falling in love with. My vanity right now is full of products that I've stumbled upon because of FabFitFun. So as a reminder, it is a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99 but always has a value of over $200. But I think we can sweeten it up a little bit more, Zena, don't you think? I believe so. If you use the coupon code UNSWEETEN, fully spelled out, you get $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. So I definitely think, ladies, it's time for you to treat yourself, get this seasonal box, a little surprise at the door. And like Zaina said, you get a coupon code that is unsweetened, fully spelled out, $10 off, and you can go and get your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. And please share your photos with us. We can't wait to see it.
Thank you so much, Sara, for joining us today. We have so much to cover, and I don't know if we could do this in one hour. So I think our listeners can be um, can assume that we might do a part two for this, for sure. But I really want to get into how did you become a Muslim therapist, especially when this is something that is not widely spoken about when it comes to mental health. So how did you even get into it? What's your backstory? Yeah. Hi, Donia. Hi, Zena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to part two. Um, so I decided to pursue um, counseling or therapy, some form of that in college. Um, I started off as being pre-med, I think, like every other brown person. And that was what I thought I wanted to do. And then slowly along the way, a lot of factors made me realize that I had another purpose and it was something a little bit more personal to me. You know, I grew up witnessing a lot of domestic violence in my home. I grew up understanding a little bit more about what mental health issues were than most of my peers. Um, I have OCD in my family, probably a little bit of Asperger's a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. It's just a little bit of everything. And that coupled with the domestic violence I witnessed, and I realized that I wanted to be the counselor that I never had growing up. That is what I wanted to do. And that's who I wanted to be. And I didn't know, um, you know, all the different tracks, I think that we're going to talk about in a few minutes um, that you can pursue in order to become a counselor. Um, And I was studying at the time at UT Austin, I didn't really want to change schools. And they had a amazing, amazing social work program. And so I just applied, didn't really think about it. And then there was a whole other set of challenges of just trying to adjust this new field, never really having any background in it, but knowing that this is so badly what I wanted to do. And here I am. now. I think that's so important. You said that you wish to be the type of therapist or counselor or that you wish you had when you were younger. I feel like a lot of us nowadays are choosing careers based off of that. Like I wish that I had a journalist on TV that looked like me when I was growing up. So like, I feel like a lot of us nowadays, maybe it's like a millennial thing, we're choosing careers based off what we wish we had growing up. How interesting is it now that you're on the other side of it? I mean, that's a whole different perspective on the issues that you've dealt with. Now you're the therapist, the social counselor on the other end that's supposed to help heal this person. And when you say that you didn't have the guidance counselor that you wanted, does that mean that you actually seek like a form of therapy when you were going through all these family issues? Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't want to get too much into it, but I had maybe, maybe, maybe 10 different counselors growing up. And that was for a lot of reasons, because we moved, because there was a lot of court and government stuff involved. Um, There were some that we were assigned to and some that we just went to on our own. And so I'd seen a little bit of it all. And I had a diverse array of different kinds of counselors um, from all different backgrounds, from different um, ethnic backgrounds. And it made such a difference sometimes based on like what their background was. And then, you know, me having to try and mesh that with them or them attempting to mesh that with me in a way that was therapeutically effective. And it didn't always work. And sometimes it was really hard. And I had a few counselors that made me cry because I was just so frustrated with them. And I just remember thinking like, why are you in this field if you don't understand people like me? And then I was like, well, where are the people like me who are in this field? And at the time, at least I wasn't aware that there were as many. And alhamdulillah, like the Muslim mental health movement has really been growing. And I'm so excited to be a part of that. And specifically to the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I'm from, like I just meet new Muslim counselors every single day. And it's just so exciting. And I think in our networking group, we have maybe around 20 now. Um, and that's unheard of. Like, I think three, four years ago, I had no idea. A lot of them moved here, but there are just so many more and so many more students I know that are pursuing this field. And it's really, really exciting. 
That's a great, another great point because you can go see a therapist that's, you know, maybe a white man or white lady. They're not going to understand the struggles that we face as Muslims in America. So it is important, I guess, to find that specific counselor or therapist that's going to work for you because I have, I have friends who've gone to therapy and they're like, oh, it didn't work for me. And it, that's probably because they had the wrong person. Where do you work, Sada? Like, what kind of practice do you work for? Yeah, so I work at a nonprofit um, closer to the Fort Worth area. It's called the Muslim Community Center for Human Services. And primarily, it's a charity clinic. And it was started um, around the time of the Bosnian refugee crisis, um, just to kind of cater to that particular population. And then it just expanded. It it brought in a domestic violence program. It brought in a mental health program. And so I'm the licensed counselor that's there right now. And so we provide free mental health counseling for anybody and everybody, regardless of income, background, gender, um, so it's a blessing to be able to work in something like that. So like what kind of therapy do you provide? Is it basically anything and everything? If anybody just walks in and like these are the issues that I'm dealing with or do you have like specific issues that you do see um, certain individuals for? Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of therapists are trained in different kinds of therapy. So there's like probably hundreds because there are so many different theories. So one of the most common types of therapy is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which you will hear most therapists reference. There's psychodynamic therapy, there's gestalt therapy, there's solution-focused brief therapy. There's so many different kinds. Uh, and then there's so many different ways to obtain those trainings and those licensures and everything you need in order to be able to provide that therapy. And every therapist has their preference. Um, I prefer adolescents and younger adults um, just because that's what like my training was in my internship. Really, adolescence has been more so my thing. And I realize now how useful it is for them to have a therapist like me, because most of the therapists in the area just aren't as young as them. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a lot of them, again, don't know how to relate to someone who's so much older and perhaps from a different community. And I've found that even though I never thought I wanted to work with kids or teenagers, like I'm able to mesh with them really, really well. Um, another issue, of course, that's really important to me is working with survivors of domestic violence. And so as part of our domestic violence program, that's also what I do. I'm just kind of helping them learn to rebuild themselves, learn about what boundaries are. That's always a huge topic in therapy is setting boundaries for themselves and between themselves and other people, between themselves and their relationships, and just really helping them find who they are again. And it's, it's, it's such a rewarding job, and I'm really excited that I get to do it every day. I think it's really awesome that you guys are offering these services, but I feel like it's getting the Muslims in our community to come and take advantage of these services because there's such a stigma around mental health and therapy and even acknowledging that you're depressed or have anxiety in our community. Why do you think that's an issue? Why do you think that Muslims are kind of like, no, it's, you know, read the good on, you'll feel much better, like therapy is not something that we do. Why do you think that is? Honestly, it's something I've been trying to figure out. And I've done a lot of as part of my job is to provide education for the community about mental health, about domestic violence. And more specifically, what I do is talking about mental health in Islam. And honestly, a lot of the issues I found within our cultures, they see an era both, unfortunately, is that the things that we believe today culturally and the way that we are today is not who we were and is not who we used to be. Once colonization happened, the the French, the British, everybody brought in their ideals. And a lot of them were the kind of things that now we are bashed for today as Desis or Arabs. Um, and one of those things is this taboo about, you know, talking about sex, you know, like 
in the, in the sense of like, like education before marriage. Another one is mental health. Another one is, um, even homosexuality became such a huge taboo topic, just in the sense of not even being able to discuss it or acknowledge that it exists. And when I read and learn about what Egypt was and what, like how India used to be like so many years ago and how all these big civilizations kind of came and died along with colonization. Um, I learned that all these things that we joke about our elders being backwards are not really who we are. And it, it frightens me sometimes because people just don't realize the damage they do can last like multiple generations and how much it's affecting us today. Um, and I think of course, you know, the way that we teach religion sometimes is so black and white and is so, so narrow minded. And I often tell people, you know, there's, if you think of your life, like a pie chart, you have the physical portion, you have the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual, even the financial, if you want to add that topic in, you can't fix emotional problems with like spiritual solutions. You know, you can, you can add to it, it can supplement it, but the emotional problem needs an emotional solution. The physical problem needs a physical solution. And I feel like we're trying to solve everything with just spirituality and it's not enough. Like it's, it's something, but it's just not enough. And like, I mean, you do work for a nonprofit that's specifically for Muslims, but do you see an increase of Muslim patients coming through? And do you see people like referring others to you since like you are dealing with adolescent and young adults? Maybe they have friends that are like, hey, you know what? I have an amazing therapist. Her name is Sada. She really gets me. Like, why don't you come and talk to her as well? Do you see a lot of referrals and increase in these patients? I do. Yeah. And I've only been in the field for about two, two and a half years. So I'm still fairly new and I'm trying to get my feet wet with what exactly are attitude is toward mental health. And it's really unfortunate because I, and I hate to say, I really do think that the reason mental health became a topic in the Muslim community, especially here in DFW, um, like suddenly you saw an increase in top in um, like lectures and imams talking about mental health and it was great, but it was only in response to a lot of suicides that happened in the community, like young kids that committed suicide. And it was just so sad that like, this is what it takes for us to talk about this, you know, like people actually have to die in order for us to begin talking about these topics. And it's extremely frustrating. I, I feel like I have seen an increase just in my time there. I know it helps that counseling where I'm at is free and you know, us people can never pass up a free opportunity anyway. No way. <laughs> uh, but there's like, there's very, there are very particular communities in Masajid that I'm really well affiliated with. And I constantly get referrals from like those specific places. Um, and it's nice and it's good that there are groups and communities that are open to it. But there are also a lot of communities that are very close minded to it. So it's yeah. still a work in progress. Yeah, not to like pat millennials on the back again, but I feel like we're the generation that's kind of taking a hold of our mental health and it take like taking notice of it. And now we're becoming parents. What can we do as like people who are maybe thinking of having kids or who already have kids? How can we teach our kids that like mental health isn't taboo? It's not a stigma. It's okay if you're feeling depressed or feeling anxious or you know if you're having a problem, you can talk to people. How do we approach our kids? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to validate and acknowledge feelings. Um, I know in our culture, like it's so it's so wrong to even acknowledge that you're sad or you're depressed or you're anxious, just, you know, lowercase d depression, not like the diagnosis depression, but just I'm not feeling well, I'm not feeling good. I want to take a sick day. It's like it's just unacceptable. You have to be go, go, go all the time. So teaching them that it's OK to take breaks, it's OK to take care of yourself Another thing, another thing in our culture as well, I think we're always taught to put others before ourselves, which is good to some degree and it's noble to some degree. But as Muslims, we have to remember our bodies are an amana, like from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And 
if we don't take care of ourselves, we will be held accountable for that. And that's something I say to so many people that I talk to that, listen, like, it's not just the sins that we commit, we will be asked about. It's the neglect that we placed upon ourselves that we will also be asked about, at least I assume just with my understanding of Islam. I think that's beautiful because Islam, you know, I feel like it's a, a religion that you can translate in your own way. I mean, there's a lot of commonalities between the translations, between different people and everything like that. But at the end of the day, it's the way you translate it. And I think that's so interesting how you just said that even taking care of your body, that's something that you're going to be asked about. And what did you do? I mean, wudu is just a, a way to perform like the way to take care of your body as well. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. I think that's like really interesting. But when it comes to, like you said, there is a rise of more mental health lectures and everything like that. And I've noticed it at the conventions and everything. And I do feel like it's better late than never. But I also do appreciate that they are starting to do that on a large platform when you come to these huge Muslim conventions and they are starting to talk about it and they are starting to bring licensed professionals to talk about it on stage. I think it's super important. But I do find also within our community sometimes, and I see this through snaps and stuff, people comparing one another's um, diagnosis. And like the way I say it is like there are people that are probably in the closet dealing with depression, but they feel like maybe this isn't depression because I know somebody that is dealing with depression and they're taking all these meds. So maybe I'm just having a bad day. Like, how do you make yourself available to these type of people who are on the borderline of like, they don't know if they're depressed or if they're having a bad day, but there is this feeling of sadness in there. That's a good question. I think a lot of people also believe that they have to be like in a severely bad state in order to seek therapy. And that's definitely not true. Like I have people that don't have a depression diagnosis at all. We, I do like a little scale questionnaire with them to um, assess their symptoms of what they're bringing in. And some of them come in with all zeros. I don't think they're, that's entirely true, but I, it might be that they just don't know how to acknowledge their symptoms, but a lot of them genuinely don't seem like they are undergoing depression. That doesn't mean they need less help because a lot of them are coming in with very real issues and problems. They just need to bounce off to someone to kind of help deal with. And so I don't think it's bad at all, or I don't think there needs to be a comparison. Of course, I you know encourage everybody, if you feel like you have you know something going on, go to a psychiatrist, get evaluated. If you need it, he will give you a diagnosis. If you need medication, he will prescribe medication for you. Um, you know, go to therapy, go talk to someone, go, you know, find a safe space for you to pitch these ideas and these thoughts and these fears to that you're experiencing. And so you don't have to have a diagnosis for that at all. So basically your door is open to anyone that just feels like, let me go and talk to somebody. Because I think that's that's what I want our listeners to kind of understand that you don't have to be diagnosed beforehand by a doctor that you have de like depression or anxiety and you're taking this medication in order for you to qualify to see a therapist. You can just see, say like, you know what? I've been feeling a little off lately. Let me go talk to a therapist and let me see where I'm at and how I gauge this. How do, how do your se sessions go up? Like, how do you start your session with somebody? Like, what do you ask them the first time you see a guest? I've always actually wonder yeah. that because like I've never gone to therapy Same. I've always wondered like is it just like the movies where you're lying down on the couch and, <laughs> I hope not. and there's a cat on the floor and you're just like you know looking into the ceiling or is it oh there's cats too that? well the movies That's I've seen there's girl. always a cat there yeah those type of movies well, well actually, I don't have a cat Sana has a bunny do you still have your rabbit or no I do have my rabbit but they're not in my therapy room. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so cute but yeah like but so very how therapeutic Exactly. Like, so if I walked in and I want to see you, this is my first time, what happens? Like, just walk us through it. Yeah. So every, every place is a little bit different because we don't charge, you know, we don't even ask about insurance information. We don't really screen anybody. It's just, you want to come in, come in. You know, we fill out some basic paperwork. I, I, um, I give them what's called a PHQ-9 form, which is like a very small, simplistic form. 
um, that evaluates their symptoms of depression. I also give them an ACEs form. And ACEs is um, a, a really big study that was conducted. It stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it pretty much assesses any of these 10 traumatic events that occurred in their childhood that might be contributing to their mental health issues today. And generally, the higher your ACEs, the the greater your mental health issues or the more trauma that you have in your life. Those are the two main um, forms that I make sure to give them because I want to get a good understanding of what it is they're coming in with because they might be able not be able to articulate it, but I can see it from the forms. And then they don't lie down on the couch. They sit on the couch, but I try and make the room as comfortable as possible. The room is really nice. I'm really proud of what I've done with it, but I, it's just supposed to be like a warm and safe environment. And I pretty much just ask them, so tell me, you know, what are you here for today? You know, what brought you here? What are you hoping to accomplish? What do you want me to help you with? And they just kind of go from there and they talk about what's going on. And sometimes I have to kind of coax them through like, okay, so then, and you know, what are your goals and what are you wanting to work towards? And what, when you leave this office, you know, 10, 12, 30, whatever sessions later, what do you have hoped to accomplish? And so we make what's called a service plan, which is a set of like smart goals, like, you know, specific measurable, different types of uh, goals that they want. And a lot, oftentimes they will be like quality, quantitative, like, okay, their PHQ-9 score was like 24, which is extremely high. We want to reduce that to like a four, at least by 20 points. And so sometimes I'll create those goals, but oftentimes I make sure that they have a hand in the goal creating process. And then we, you know, I try and schedule them every week. I work with their schedule and I explain to them that, you know, it's going to feel a lot like talking, but what we're really doing here is we're problem solving. And what we're doing here is creating a safe space for you to feel like you are allowed to express yourself unfiltered and unadulterated and not only just talk, but, you know, work through whatever issues are kind of plaguing you right now. Um, And so a lot of people don't really get it. And sometimes they never end up getting it and they don't come back and that's fine. But the ones that do really kind of learn about the process, they open up and then they realize that even though, yeah, we just talk for an hour and then we do that for like 10, 20, whatever sessions, but they feel different at the end and they feel like they've actually accomplished something. Um, And that's just the power of it is that it's just developing a relationship and it's developing that rapport. And, you know, we say as counselors that the most important aspect of any therapeutic relationship is the relationship. Um, you don't, it doesn't matter how many techniques, you know, or how many different therapeutic modalities you've been trained in. If you don't develop a solid base of trust with your client, you're not going to accomplish anything. And that's where like me being me and me being, you know, um, young Muslim, um, that oftentimes really relates to a lot of my clients. It really, really comes in handy. Just me being who I am and being able to understand the references and understand like the things that these kids are going through. And it, it really, it just makes a really big difference. I I definitely think it makes a huge difference because I've never thought of therapy or any of that stuff because I feel like the way I envision a therapist is a white woman. And I'm like, how can this white woman ever understand what I'm going through, you know? But if I were to walk into an office and I see somebody like you, I'm like, okay, this girl, she she resembles my background. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm Arab, you're Daisy, but still, like, I I know for a fact that she's going to understand the issues that the reason why I'm dealing with certain things because of sometimes it does deal with cultural way of the way we're brought up and everything. I also think it's interesting that you did say that like some people don't come back and I know somebody that's very close to me and she told me that she sought out a therapist at her college on her campus. They have free therapy and whatnot. And she's like, 
I instantly cried and everything. Not that the therapist was bad, but she's like a lot of stuff was brought up and it was just a little too heavy for her. And and she's like, I don't think I'm going to go back. I'm like, why not? I'm like, this is the first step of the process, just unraveling everything. It's going to be hard. How do you bring those type of people back when they almost feel like they were reliving the trauma in your therapy session? Like, how do you bring those people back that maybe don't want to deal with that again? But little do they know that it will help them out in the long run. Yeah. And honestly, that's one of the hardest parts of being a therapist is giving everyone their right to self-determination. I mean, we especially talk about it with like domestic violence, for example, because we'll have women that come in that really want to leave their abusive partner and then they go back. And it's just you have to watch that process and you grit your teeth. And um, of course, like I don't really like to push the client too much the first time. I'm just leaving it open to them with like whatever they want to kind of like disclose to me. Um, I'll ask my questions to kind of get my assessment. But if it's bringing up that much heavy trauma in just the first session, like, I mean, they don't even know me enough to reveal that much to me. So I don't want to do that because that'll damage the trust between me and them. But, you know, oftentimes this happens and it's not because, and I've had to really teach myself, like, I'm not a bad therapist. A lot of people just aren't ready to open that door. And a lot of people just don't understand the therapeutic process as much as you, you know, as much as you explain it to them. And that's the hard part to me is that, you know, sometimes, and hate to, you know, bash on, and I'm not bashing on anybody, but like, sometimes like, you know, aunties will come in and aunties, you know, will look at me as if I'm like their daughter and they'll talk to me like I'm a daughter. I'm like, I'm not your daughter. I'm your therapist. We're going to talk about real issues here, not, you know, the way that you want to speak about it. And so because of who they are and who I am, it's very hard for me to navigate that. And so it doesn't really end up being therapy. It ends up just being talking and it ends up being just something it's not supposed to be. And then some, then they won't, they'll say, well, well this didn't help. And oftentimes they come in for the first session and they expect to feel better like right away. And I'm just like, that's not how this works. This is a process takes 12 sessions minimum. Um, I'm a believer in long-term therapy. And so I think we always say that, what is it? I think eight to 12 sessions is like the average. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. We need 30, 40 sessions. And because it's free, I'm able to provide that. That's not realistic in most private practices and whatnot, but I've seen like the biggest changes happen after like a really long time of, you know, developing that relationship and having that, that trust. And I feel like in our older generations, it's always, let's put our best foot forward in our society. It's always like, everything is perfect, you know, behind closed doors, everyone is happy. It's, I think I am not a therapist, but I would think that getting those people to open up is probably the hardest than when it compares to like the younger generations. I, I just, I always wonder why it is that way because I don't know. I don't think we're fooling anyone. We're really not. There's so much going on within our own communities and there's so much going on in our homes. And I just, I often have like this period of just cognitive dissonance that how can we let each other suffer the way that we do? How can we, you know, be part of a religion and, you know, culture that's supposed to be so compassionate, but we're ruthless when it comes to things like this. And so it's always a work in progress for me, but I just make it my mission to be as compassionate and kind as possible and just doing my best to spread awareness that, listen, like, this is real life. Like we as Muslims, like, no, this is not a, you know, a perfect world. That's not supposed to be a perfect world. And everybody goes through their issues and there's a bigger reason for that, but we're all in it. Like we're all, we're all dealing with it. We're all in it together. And it's important to have that sense of community, not just with the good things that happen, not just with our fancy weddings, but also with like the hardest times that, you know, we go through. 
I feel like something that I'm still struggling with is prioritizing my mental health the same way that I prioritize like my physical health. And that's something that like I, you know, if I get a cold, I am at the urgent care. But like if I'm stressed out or I know that like I'm not feeling good mentally, it's kind of like, okay, put it back, put it on the back burner, like go to work. You're fine. Like everything's okay. How can we like what are small things that we can do in our daily lives to help us put our mental health at the forefront? Yeah, great. That's a good question. A lot of people think that taking care of your mental health is always like a big grand gesture. Like, let's go on a vacation and let's pay a couple thousand dollars to do this or let's go get a manicure. And it's not like it's oftentimes the most simple, small things you can do that will just help you take a break and stop. Um, I had one client who I like we literally cured his anxiety by teaching him how to breathe. I'm not joking. Um, Yeah, there's a specific technique called the four, seven, eight breathing technique. And you inhale for four, you hold for seven, you exhale for eight. I'm I'm doing it right now. (laughs) Yeah, so you inhale for four seconds, you hold seven, and then you exhale for eight. Yeah, so there's different numbers of seconds. I can see that working. I'm so zen. Yeah, yeah. So what it does, it floods your body with oxygen and it floods your brain with oxygen. So whenever you're feeling like, you know, short of breath or your heart is racing, it's because you're actually not breathing. And so when you bring that oxygen into your body, it floods your, you know, your blood vessels and everything. And that's how you're actually able to, you know, get the elements and what like from the air around you that you need. Um, just to calm down. And it's it's so easy. It's so simple. I'm like, breathing is something we do every day. But a lot of us don't realize how much we don't breathe. I mean, that's one thing I deal with a lot is hyperventilating. I do that. I don't know why. It's like a lot of things like it just stresses and it comes out of nowhere. It's not something you can control or like deter. But that's something that would probably help with that too as well. Like the breathing session. Yeah, when you when you start to feel the symptoms of like when you start to feel yourself hyperventilating, just start breathing really deeply because you're hyperventilating because you don't uh, you either I think it's like you're taking in too much oxygen or you're not taking enough oxygen. I just feel like I'm uh, suffocating. So yeah, yeah basically, yeah, yeah. Wow. So if you just regulate your breathing, that would help. There's also square breathing. It's um like four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds exhale, four seconds hold. Um, so there's different numbers and different combinations that work really well. But yeah, breathing is one thing. Just you know, stopping, closing your eyes, breathing. Another one is, I guess, just like finding things throughout the day that you like to do. Um, like on my drive home, like I have a really, really long drive home. And so I either listen to podcasts, I listen to put on, I call my friends. Like I, I know that I don't have time throughout my day to do a lot of these things I like to do. And so I just, I try and make the most of that particular time, like, you know, driving home, spending time with people you like, you know, just having five, 10 minutes with your family, you know, calling your friends, if you're your family, if you're far away from them, it's just, it's, it's little, little things here and there taking long showers, if you really feel like it, allowing yourself to be comfortable for a few minutes and satisfied before you have to pick up and run back off and do what you need to do again. But breathing is always the first thing I recommend. Another thing I want to add too is, um, again, like self care and taking care of ourselves, oftentimes is the most basic need, uh, like it, it requires taking care of our basic needs. So just sleeping eight hours a night, is the best self-care you can give yourself. Eating right, eating three meals a day is the best self-care you can have because even in our assessment of these symptoms of depression, those are the first things that are affected is your sleep and your diet. And so if you start with that basic, that pyramid, if you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you can't go up that ladder until you've figured out and um, fulfilled the very basic needs that you know the human body requires, food, water, shelter, sex, all of those things. And then comes safety, emotional safety, physical safety, and then comes everything else. 
You're, you're so right because I feel like when on the days, the nights that I don't get my seven or eight hours of sleep, the next day I'm very like just it annoyed. You off. Yeah. yeah, I'm agitated and everything like that. And like literally my sisters make fun of me because I try my best to be in bed by 11 p.m. Like I have to because I know, I swear to God, if I sleep at 12 one hour later, it affects my whole mood the next day. Some days when you're so busy and you, fr- you miss a meal, that's also, that does affect you 100%. So that start, if you want to do self-care, yeah, definitely start with that. Then you can go get your facials and whatnot if you want to <laughs> exactly. go ahead and do that. But it starts with your body, like you're legit when you're with your body before the whole superficial yeah. thing. It's so funny because like we'll take our vitamins that our doctors prescribe, we'll, you know, do everything they tell us. But when it comes to self-care, it's like, oh, that's a selfish thing. Mm-hmm. I've heard people exactly. say like self-care is so selfish. Like, you know, you could be using that time to like do other things. It's like, no, it's I am helping myself right now. Like that's all. That exactly. Matters exactly. You, you can't pour from an empty cup if you don't have what you know, what you need. You can't really give to other people the, the way that you'd want to. So I was giving all this, all these little quotes and stuff like that. I'm loving it. So you did mention that you feel like therapy does involve our religion very much so. And because the Quran does like it does talk about the importance of taking care of your mental health and it mentions it in a couple instances. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit more? How mental health is inter- intertwined with our religion, with our faith? Yeah, um, I have so many like little examples here and there. I wish I had verses I can quote, but I mean, there's so many... Um, parts in the Quran where Allah tells us to reflect or he says indeed these are signs for those who reflect these are signs for people who understand and I think that if we go on a deeper level it's not just you know understanding on a surface level it's questioning it's um, you know evaluating it's it's doing it's it's discovering yourself and discovering your relationship with God and I think it just encourages this culture of a constant self-reflection and that oftentimes ties in very well with mental health because a lot of the issues I see people coming in with are just identity issues like who am I where is my place in this world what is our purpose what 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 does my relationship with Allah even mean that's one thing and then there's you know examples in the Quran and Hadith about you know different Sahaba and prophets um, undergoing immense difficulties and struggling with it, you know, like, for example, Maryam radiallahu an, um, Mother of Isa, uh, I think it's either Surah Ali Imran or Surah Maryam, I, I wish I could remember which one, but, you know, when she was about to give birth, she was driven to the trunk of a palm tree, and the Quran verse says that she says, would that I had died before this day, before I, you know, have I'd had to undergo this and people don't realize that's referring to suicide. Like, I don't think people ever think about that. I definitely never thought wow. about that. You know, she actually thought of dying. She wanted to die. And she was mentioning this right before she gave birth. And I, that was so powerful to me that, man, like, you know, if the most incredible people that ever walked the face of this earth were tested with this and felt like this, you can't say they failed the test, but you can say they really struggled and they really underwent a lot of trials. Um, and that was one example. The other was the Prophet ﷺ went through things called the year of sorrow, which is when um, his wife, Khadija radiallahu an, passed away, his uncle Abu Talib passed away, and then that was the same year that Ta'if happened. And it was called the year of sorrow because he was sad, like he was undergoing so much. He had also been, I think, exiled from Mecca at the time, and it was just one bad thing after another. Um, and I don't think we can ever say the Prophet had depression, but if you want to be very technical, he had symptoms of it. He was sad. He was he was in a period of sorrow. It was one of the hardest times of his life. And, you know, we it's just it's unfortunate, again, the way we teach our faith and we forget to humanize um, the Prophet and the different people that we look up to and the stories that we read about. And like these were not just stories. These are actual people with actual feelings 
the Prophet ﷺ cried more than any man you would ever meet, ever. Like they say that his beard was always soaked with tears. Um, when his son passed away, he cried so much. And I just think like, you know, if the Prophet of God could, you know, feel the whole spectrum of his emotions and he did it proudly and openly. And it is it, to me, I consider it like a gift from God that we're able to feel this deeply and feel so much. Who are we to say that this is something we should just suppress and pretend like it doesn't exist? This is what God gave us. This is a part of who we are. This is a part of humanity. Um, you know, like humans are the, the most intelligent beings on this planet. And we are able to feel this and express this in a certain way. And all we do is suppress it. So what does that make us, you know, if we're not able to actually express that for ourselves? So, yeah, I mean, I think those are just those are just some of the examples that I think of from the Quran and Hadith. There's a particular Sira book. It's called Muhammad by Martin Lings. And that's the first book, the Sira, the first Sira book I ever read that um, really helped me humanize the Prophet. There was a there was a story in there. And I always have to share this. There's a story in there about the Prophet I'm actually going through heartbreak when he was younger. He um, wanted to marry. I think it was one of his cousins, one of his uncle's daughters. Um, and he liked her and he wanted to marry her, but he was a shepherd at the time. And so he wasn't considered good enough. And so they said no. And he was heartbroken. And I was just so flabbergasted by this. I was like, the prophet went through heartbreak. Wow. Would we ever think of the prophet going through heartbreak? Like how many of us have gone through heartbreak and we feel so weird and like, you know, shameful about it, but he actually went through it. And nobody will ever talk about that. Nobody would ever mention that in the Sita, but it's there and it's part of who he was. And that was the first time I really, really started to connect with him and, you know, understand that this was a living, breathing human being in addition to being like the greatest human being ever on the face of this earth. And he cried and he had dealt with heartbreak and he loved and he felt so deeply. And if we want to emulate him and the way he is, we also have to be able to feel the way he felt. It's so disappointing though. Like I was fortunate since like elementary school to always have some kind of religion like lessons. I've been to like private Islamic schools. I've had private lessons at home. Up until I want to say even high school, I had Saturday school and never once was any of those lessons about mental health or any of the stories that you just told us about. Like, it's really disappointing that like, you'll go to hell if you don't do this and you'll go to hell if you don't do that. But like, there's also other topics and other lessons that need to be taught in our Islamic schools and in our private lessons that kids aren't getting. And it's, you know, focusing on mental health and focusing on like, it's okay to cry. And you know, the Prophet Muhammad cried himself, like it's okay to feel these feelings, but kids aren't taught that way. Cause I wasn't taught that way unless things have changed. I know I'm 26, I'm not that old. Yeah. I don't think times have changed that much, but like, I wasn't given those lessons at all. Yeah, that's absolutely. a great point, Sada. It seems, Zena, I never had those type of lessons. I never thought of humanizing our own prophet. Like, honestly, I never thought of all the things. And that's true, because I've heard a story when he lost a loved one and somebody, one of his companions asked him, like, is it OK to cry as much as you're crying? And he's like, yeah, he's like, I love this person. Why shouldn't I cry? So he's exactly. basically telling you it's OK to cry. It's OK to express these emotions. Like you, like you said, you should never suppress these. But as the youth, we're not taught these things um, about our or profit no. i see some imams are there are doing a great job and that's because they're more of our they're more in our age group so they're starting to do that but from back then like you said Zayn, when i was in school no it was it was like black and white there wasn't no Very humanizing nice. yeah. our prophet i don't know i don't know how to explain it but it's almost like this stuff for all to say but we make like the prophet seem like godlike we don't talk about the things that he exactly. really did go through you know what right. i mean exactly. and going back to what you were saying about the imams being our yeah. age it's kind of going back to what sarah Sada was saying before it's we as now we're becoming the adults, we're becoming the people we wish we had in our lives. So mm -hmm. this imam that you probably heard talk about, it's okay to feel heartbreak, it's okay to feel like these mental health issues, probably experienced someone he was younger and wish he had someone 
in his position talk about it what do you think our i mean this might be like a very loaded question and i'm not putting it all on you but what do you think our sheikhs and our imams should do in the mosque to kind of help the youth because we do give out a lot of lectures and everything like that but what else should we expect from our like you know community leaders in this case in this regard for mental health I think a lot of people tell sheikhs to become more well-versed in mental health, and I do agree. But I also think that there needs to be a little bit more outsourcing in our communities. You know, we turn to our sheikhs for every single problem that we deal with, and they're not, like, God bless them. Like, they're not equipped for all of this. They learned Islam, and they learned um, the deen, like, the Quran, like, back to front. Like, they're not trained, and I don't think they should always be expected to be trained in these issues. I think what we need is we need not only for the communities to stop handing sheikhs and imams the mic all the time for every issue, but sheikhs and imams need to also learn to pass the mic and need to learn to build like a really solid, I guess, foundation within their masajid for, you know, mental health support, for like social services, for domestic violence support, um, so that they're also not constantly overwhelmed and having to deal with these issues all the time. Um, You know, there was this case that happened here in Austin concerning like sexual assault, and I got a lot of phone calls and I was just surprised at how many people called me. I'm like, who am I? But they're like, what do we do? Like, how do we help? Like, what, what, what do we do next? And I was like, the first thing I'm going to say is do not, you know, stick a shake in front of a mic and tell him to like say a few words. And I don't say that as a disrespected shake. Like, you know, there's some of the most elevated, respected people of the community, but it's exactly that, that we respect and elevate them so much that we expect them to take on these burdens that they're not equipped to. And that's not fair to them. It's not, you know? And so um, you know, it, like, alhamdulillah, there's been like a good effort, at least I think here in this community, you know, be in touch with different mental health, like networking groups. Like there's one that I'm a part of called MAPS. It's um, Muslim Association for Psychological Services. And there are a couple of imams that reach out to us and they have our cards and they have our information, our website. And so they know that if someone comes to them with a particular issue, they can just, they can, you know, provide the Islamic guidance they need, but not claim to provide counseling or marriage counseling or whatever that they're not formally trained to do. And they can just pass it along to one of us who actually, you know, can take that and understand and know where it's, which referral it's coming from and actually do the work that's needed to help. And so I don't know, I feel like that suggestion is a little bit more, I don't know if I'd say radical, but it's different because a lot of people are just saying, no, like we have to be, you know, to shakes and imams are taking responsibility to be more well-versed in this. I'm like, that's great. And, you know, props to you, but you can't do it all. Like nobody can. And we, we have people in the community who are able to do this part. So, you know, give it to them that this is what they're here for and elevate them too, you know? The mental health workers do this kind of work and they're immersed in it every day. Another thing I see sometimes is, you know, again, people speaking on mental health and saying things that they're not qualified to say, and they often say the wrong thing. Um, and again, that's where it's almost just a disrespect to the people who do this work every day and who've been trained in it and who are, you know, taking these suicide calls or crisis calls or whatever. And so it's like give not only, you know, outsource to them, but elevate them to some degree as well. They're doing a lot of work to keep the community together behind the scenes that nobody really sees. You know, I think, and not even me, but the other ones I know, like they should, you know, be respected and, you know, elevated in that sense as well. You're absolutely right. Our community leaders are not super beings. Nobody is well equipped to be a mental therapist, a marriage counselor, um, an imam. Um, every like that's just too much for one person to bear. And not only do they have to bear all this, but imagine the thousands of people that come to them, hundreds of people that come to them daily. Like, hey, I have this issue with my wife. I have this issue with my kid. Like, they can't handle this on such a high, large volume. And the thing is, sometimes I do feel like our imams and community leaders are amazing, but there is a little bias because they do 
do sometimes know your backstory or your family. So when it comes to talking to them about marriage counseling, they might think like, oh, that guy's family is not that great. So maybe he is the issue and let's side more with the girl and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? Like they know too much about one family more so than the other. So they kind of tend to side side with the one family. I'm not saying this for all community leaders, but I do see it within our community sometimes because it is a very tight-knit community and our imams and community leaders know every single person in our little suburb. So it's kind of hard to go in there and expect our imam to just be unbiased and not know anything. And this is everything that he knows is everything that's just coming out of our mouths. You know what I mean? Exactly. And it's natural too, right? Counselors like, you know, spend so much time in their education talking about differentiating yourself and your opinions from like trying to be biased and trying to be very neutral and trying to really see both sides instead of immediately siding with one or the other. And that's something counselors struggle with. And so imams who probably are not trained in this, I can imagine how much they will struggle with it too. And you know, cut, like create damage, God forbid, without even realizing they're doing it. And I've seen that happen. I've seen a lot of people come into my office and say, we went to Imam so-and-so for this kind of counseling and it was just the worst and he completely dismissed me. And, and of course, that's not, again, bashing on all Imams, but if you don't have the training to understand how to just work with people as people, not, you know, from an Islamic perspective, but like from a psychological perspective, you're not going to, number one, develop that trust and number two, you're not going to solve anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, not to bash them at all because our community leaders are doing an amazing job, specifically at my master. Amazing. But again, there's a difference between seeking therapy and then going into an office with a sheikh and imam and ends up just being a conversation, like you said, and you don't want that. That's not therapy. Therapy is supposed to get you somewhere more so than just, you know, the imam having a conversation with two people who are at odds or even just you yourself. But that's even like me coming to you, Dunya, and being like, hey, Dunya, I have to take off. Can you come into work and take over for me that one day? You might know on the surface what it is I do, but you don't know the details of the ins and outs. So it's the same thing going to, up to an imam and saying like, oh, I need marriage counseling now. I need this now. I need, you know, uh, mental Absolutely. health, uh, you know, help now. Like, so it's one person can't wear that many hats. We need like, somebody. It's impossible that really unravels you right. and is trained to unravel you and get what they need to get out of you too. But I do want to focus on the fact that like mental health in the Islamic community, especially as like Muslim Americans is so important because as Muslim Americans, our experiences are so unique and the things that we go through are things that people back home, you know, in Palestine or wherever aren't going through, you know, as American Muslims, we go through hate crimes and we have so much going against us like I turn on the news and I hear that you know Muslims are evil Muslims are this Muslims are that and then I walk on in the streets with my mom and she's wearing the hijab and she gets stares and she gets comments so the things that we go through are so they're they're targeting our mental health without even realizing that they're doing that so having that those um outlets that like hey like you know I feel insecure about this I feel low about this I feel depressed about this having an outlet where we can go and be like and talk to someone about those feelings is so crucial, especially because, like I said, our experiences, no one else goes through them. Um, and I know Islamophobia has been a big issue that you said targets mental health, but it's not even just that. It's just like a combination of that plus like a couple hundred other things that they're dealing with. So I actually don't see much of that, but I pulled up like a couple of incidents. Um, there's this really awesome article called Mental Health Facts for Muslim Americans. No, sorry, it's called Mental Health Disparities, um, colon, Muslim Americans. And it was an, like a little study by the American Psychiatric Association. And I don't remember how many, I don't think I can see how many people they interviewed, but they, you know, interviewed a group of Muslims and they compared immigrant Muslims to U.S. born Muslims. 
Um, and 39% of immigrant Muslims in the U.S. that they interviewed say that they experienced at least one racist incident because they're Muslim. And then U.S.-born Muslims, um, 61% say that they um, experienced one of these incidents. And the incidents include, you know, someone acting suspicious around them, being called offensive names, being physically threatened or attacked, airport security singling them out, or law enforcement officers singling them out. And the whole point of the study was just to, um, I guess, let mental health professionals know that even maybe you see it in your office, maybe you don't, but this is taking a toll on them. Um, and it's causing a lot of fear and anxiety just in and of itself. When you're a kid and like you see that, like, you know, people are acting suspicious around you or, you know, people are giving your mom, st- you know, a stare in the in the grocery store. You start to, as a child, think maybe there is something, maybe I am evil, maybe I am, you know, what they say I am. So that kind of messes with your head as well, especially at a young age when you're seeing everybody is against you and against your people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so many people just come in with those identity issues of like, what is Islam? Why is Islam the way it is? Um, like, you know, as therapists, as a rule of thumb, we don't talk about two things with our clients, religion and politics. Um, and I break that rule often, not just because, you know, my clients want me to, you know, talk about Islam, but there's often many clients who are, who have not only just questioned Islam, but have completely felt like they don't belong in that faith group anymore. And it's, just, it's so funny, I joke that I have a client who I converted from being atheist to being agnostic. And that was like my accomplishment of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a young teenager. And of course, like I didn't really do it, but it was just conversations with a um, young Muslim person like myself who was, I'd like to consider myself open-minded, who could give more perspective than, you know, a lot of times his family could. Um, and him realizing like, okay, you know, I don't know how I feel about this Islam stuff, but I do think there's a God. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, step one. And of course, like my goal isn't to convert and that's not really what I'm there for, but it's more so to just remind them of their roots and where they came from and that, you know, whatever it is you're going through that's driving you away is not Islam in and of itself. It's what has been projected onto you. It's what you've been raised around and that's not what it really is. Um, And so just offering like that, a different perspective and offering a different insight than they've perhaps grown up with. I know as adults, we know the difference between the Islam that we grew up with and the Islam that's being portrayed in the media. But these children that are going to elementary, junior high and everything like that, they're being surrounded by all this hate towards their religion. And when you're that young, you're very impressionable and you start thinking like, is my religion the right religion? Should I even claim that I'm Muslim? Should I just like, you know, not be an obvious Muslim and everything like that. So it's very hard for children. And I think it's very, the work that you're doing is super important because you are starting with adolescent young adults. And I think it's important for even like the, you know, our little teenage cousins that are going through this to, to have somebody to talk to, to have somebody to show our religion in the beautiful way, in a very, very beautiful way, because it's very important then just to keep it black and white. And this is haram and this is halal and this and that they, then they start to deter from our own religion. But I do want to move on to domestic, violence um and i think it's a very important topic and i want you to delve a little bit deeper into how emotional abuse it can really really truly affect yourself and your mind in the long run and how many and how do you help how do you help these women that do come to you that have um seen or have had to endure domestic violence yeah it's it's difficult it's one of the more difficult issues to deal with because you're not just dealing with domestic violence in and of itself you're also dealing with the cultural baggage that comes along with it and the expectations of, you know, like I'll often have women saying like, yo, you know, this is just, I have to sacrifice and this is my role in the community and this is my role in the world. And it's like, I don't, I can't as a therapist just slap them and say, no, no, it's not like, that's not what Islam is. That's not what it teaches you. And this is not something you will 
I mean, this is not something that's like a thing you have to endure to take you to Jannah. This is oppression in the home. And that's not something that is, as a Muslim, we're supposed to stand for, whether it's on someone else or whether it's on ourselves. And so a lot of times it's a lot of conversations about Islam and what Islam says about people that harm each other in this kind of way, especially those within the home. A lot of times it's, again, working through some of their triggers, working through some of their boundaries. Just sometimes it's as simple as validating them and telling them that they're doing the right thing because a lot of times when they come in and they want to leave their abuser, they're completely, completely alone. Like I have someone I'm working with who her entire family has turned against her and her husband's family has turned against her. And it's just like, you know, who is she supposed to turn to? She has her kids and that's about it. Um, and that's just the hardest situation I could ever imagine coming across. Because even when I dealt with it within my family, we at least had, you know, my mom's side of the family. And that was the hugest blessing and help that I could, that we could have ever had. But to think that they don't even have that is frightening. And I don't know what else I can give them except just try to encourage them and give them that strength because to be that alone and to feel like you're wrong um, while you're being, you know, told that you're stupid and wrong and all those things that come with emotional abuse is just overwhelming and unfathomable. Honestly, I also think that there's also a lot of it deals with a financial stability too, because no, no woman wants to stay in a household where she's getting beaten. I don't think any woman wants to, but there are a lot of women in our community who are very dependent on the males in their family. Not to say that only the men in, in these households are their abusers, but let's just say like the women are the ones that are not financially stable and they're very dependent. It's very hard. So it's like, as a therapist, you probably struggle when it comes to that point, because yeah, you can't just like go and rescue her and take her out of her home. There's only so much that you can do. How does that take a toll on you knowing that somebody's going through something and they do end up going back to their abuser well to, to highlight on your earlier point that's also where being a social worker comes in handy um or at least the training because i mean of course other counselors may or may not do this too but as a social worker you have a lot of knowledge of the different systems around you and the resources that can help someone get a job that can help someone apply for benefits that can at least help you know manage their their financial situation a little bit and it's of course it's not seamless and it's not um, entirely foolproof. And regardless of what resources you find or what you might not find, they may still feel like staying at home in this kind of environment is financially safer than doing anything else. And so that does happen sometimes. And I'm trying to think of different times I've witnessed, um, you know, that struggle, them going back and forth. And I don't know, like, it's it's really hard because as a therapist, you learn, you really have to detach yourself, not you know, not taking away from the compassion, but just remembering constantly that like you can't save everyone and you're not here to save anyone in the first place. You're here to, you know, teach them how to help save themselves. And if you can't do it, you know, they're not ready for it. They're not in that place. You know, it comes when Allah decides that it comes, not just because you, you know, happen to be there. And so sometimes it does get hard. It's not, you know, as easy as, you know, sometimes I may, may make it sound because there are times that I do feel like I have failed, um, whether it comes to, you know, domestic violence, whether it comes to, you know, them relapsing in their mental health um, and having another episode. And, you know, you just have to remember that you may be one piece of the puzzle as a therapist. You're probably a big piece, but you're not the only piece. There are lots of things that, you know, affect these people. You see them for one hour out of a week and they're in whatever environment they're in all the rest of the time. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. And I like it knowing like my clients will come back and say, oh my gosh, I went through this situation. And then I heard your voice in my head telling me to do this. And I'm like, that's when I know, you know, this is, you know, doing what it's supposed to do, but that's not always how it is. And we just have to acknowledge it for what it is and, you know, count your blessings and count, you know, or acknowledge the ones that you were able to make some sort of positive impact on and not beat yourself up about the rest. 
That's a great point to say that you're just a piece of the puzzle because you, again, we're not superhumans. We can't solve everybody's issues and we can't put that all on ourselves. Then you're going to need a therapist yourself. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. If you're going to like, you know, feel guilty for not helping everybody. And there's only so much that you can do for somebody. It's up to them to take that help or not and what what they want to do with that help. But then there's also the kids that are involved in the situation. Like, what is the impact on these children and the relationships they get into as they grow up when they've come from a, a broken home, when they've come from a home where they've seen abuse happen. I think a lot of, not to cut you off, but I think a lot yeah. of kids also don't realize domestic abuse because domestic abuse isn't always physical. Absolutely. It's a lot of emotional, verbal abuse. And so a lot of kids might grow up and say, like, hey, this is normal. It's okay that daddy says this to mom. And it's okay that, versa. you know, yeah. So it, it's, I feel like that is also like an underlining issue that we don't really acknowledge. You're so right, because um, I think one time I was at a fundraiser and they asked me to like read a few poems or something from my book and, I, and then also kind of share my story with domestic violence. And I remember one thing I said that even I was just like, you know, thinking about much afterwards because I, I was that kid, you know, and I said that, you know, the reason I want you guys to donate to this organization today is not just because you save one woman. When you save one woman, you save her children. And when you save her children, you save their spouses, their, their future spouses. And then when you save that, you save their their children to come because domestic violence isn't just a one time thing. It's learned behavior. You know, it's learned behavior and it's a lack of positive coping skills and a lack of relationship skills. And, you know, several other factors that lead to just this explosive violence. And I'm not going to say it's just that it's so much more complicated than that. But if you don't break the cycle, it continues. And so I, you know, as a kid, I was very much in this mindset. And, you know, all my siblings are different. I'm just going to mostly talk about myself. But I was very much in this mindset that everything is okay. Everything's fine. You know, just gloss over it. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. You know, divorce, we don't do that. Like, what does that even mean? That's for white people, you know? Like, and so I was so, so, so narrow-minded. And it was because I was taught to think this way. And I can't imagine, like, if, you know, what... You know, if my parents hadn't divorced and I hadn't learned about these things and alhamdulillah, everybody's on good terms and it's fine. But if that break hadn't happened, I don't know where I would be right now. Like, I really, really don't. You know, I wouldn't be doing this work. That's for sure. Like, absolutely not. Um, I wouldn't have even known what domestic violence was. I probably would be in a bad relationship because I was taught that this is what you do as a woman and this is what you're supposed to endure. And this is Islam. And I, you know, came so much from that black and white perspective. And it scares me sometimes to think that like that like I actually used to think like this and I was taught to think like this and that's you know how I you know viewed survival and so when I say that you know you you not only you know save or help a woman you help her kids it's because you know studies have shown that when you witness domestic violence growing up in your home you are I don't again don't remember the percentage but you are an, a great number of times more likely to end up in that same kind of abusive relationship and the reason for that is you know because we learn most of our skills and most of the way we are is from our parents. You know, we, you know, we see them all the time growing up. They're our caretakers. They're our caregivers. We learn patterns from them without even realizing. And a big thing we learn from them is relationships. You know, when you think about attachment theory, um, it's a theory in psychology. There's secure attachment and there's different types of insecure attachment. And all of these have to do pretty much with how you were taught to process and view relationships as a child based on the way that your caregivers treated you. And of course, I'm summarizing it's a little bit more complicated than that. But if you grow up with an insecure attachment, you're not going to be, you're not going to have the skills you need to be in a healthy, normal, you know, romantic or even, you know, platonic relationship. And so it affects all parts of your life as a kid. It affects your future romantic relationships. It even affects the way that you work with other people. 
it affects the way that you can get triggered um, just by, you know, having your boundaries violated a little bit. When you have undergone a lot of trauma, your amygdala fires off, you know, sooner and faster. That's what, you know, triggers panic attacks. That's what triggers, you know, PTSD, because your response to stress is so narrow and limited that everything can stress you out extremely fast. And so think about like living a life like that, where you can't handle the most, you know, the most, the small, the small things, the most mundane of problems, but instead it feels like a huge problem to you. And then you multiply that by every friendship, every relationship, every bad news story, and it, it causes instability. Um, and I say that, and I say all this to say like, you know, it looks very harmless. It looks like, oh, you know, they grew up in this, but they know better and they'll know their way out of it. And they don't. Your brain has formed a certain way and it's formed certain connections to where some things are okay and some things aren't. And that's where therapy comes in because you literally have to undo some of those brain connections and you make new ones. You make new healthy ones. Um, you make new ones that teach you what's okay and what's not okay. Because when you grow up in that kind of environment, you don't know what's okay and what's not okay. So all that to say, it affects children and it affects youth a lot more than we think we do and think it does. And then they, you know, they grow up and they end up in the same kind of problem. Bed. And then, you know, the cycle just doesn't stop. I mean, this behavior is very, it's almost like cancerous. If you want to compare it to cancer, like you want to stop cancer in its first stages. And when it comes to this type of behavior, you want to stop it in its tracks, because if you don't, it's going to start trickling down to, yeah, your children, then your children's children. And it's just going to keep going on and on. Same with cancer. It's going to affect your whole entire body. So you have to stop these things in their tracks. You have to get the proper care, the proper help. And these children don't know any better. And just like you said, Zaina, like it, sometimes it's not physical abuse, it's emotional abuse in the way or verbal abuse. And then this person's going to be this way with their spouse one day. So it's super important to just start from the very beginning once these issues arise. And I think it's really important to also end this with talking about resources. And as somebody who wants to seek a therapist and somebody who can relate to their therapist coming from the same almost cultural background and faith background, how does one go about finding a good therapist? How do you seek a therapist? Yeah, great question. So depending on where you live, um, there's a really great um, like directory website. It's called psychologytoday.com. And you can filter by religion and you can filter by language. And that's usually what I tell people to do. Because sometimes maybe you don't just want a Muslim therapist, but you want a you know South Asian therapist. So you can just filter by the language, Urdu or Hindi or something like that. They don't have every single language. They don't have every single religion, but they have most of the ones that you know we commonly see come into therapy. And so that's always a resource I refer people to. Not everybody I know is on that website. And so sometimes it doesn't help. A lot of therapists won't put um, their religious background or their um, their language background on those profiles, but it's just a really really good website and it's just like a comprehensive directory of like every therapist ever in the U.S. Um, that's the first resource. Another, there's a couple of online resources as well. I mean, a lot of therapists will do online counseling too, um, like video counseling. I don't exactly know how it works. I don't do that, um, but there's some counselors in my area who who do provide that. So if you're not in a location that where you're able to find the kind of therapist that you're looking for with that kind of background, you can always do online counseling. I don't personally recommend it. Like I can never, like being a former client myself, I could never imagine doing online counseling. Like I just think it's so, it's, too it just digital. takes away that. Yeah. yeah, too digital. It takes away the, you know, this big chunk of like the rapport building of like being with someone in the same space and room and noticing their expressions, their body language, all of that. Like it just, it takes away a huge aspect of what therapy is meant to be. But, you know, it's also a really, really great option for people who don't, have access to that. And there are many people who don't. 
there's I think there's starting to be different networking groups um, around the country. I know DFW really has a good one. Um, Muslim Mental Health is a I think it's an institute that's based in Michigan and they have a Muslim Mental Health directory. I don't know if it's been updated right now. They also have a conference every year that anybody can attend. Uh, I believe um, last year it was this past year it was in Phoenix. The year before it was in Washington, D.C. And the years before that, it was in Michigan. But that's a good resource just to connect with other therapists and start to kind of build your network. I mean, I say that as a therapist, but um, SEMA also, I think they just started SEMA. I don't remember what it stands for, but it's another group that created like a Muslim mental health directory. Um, and it has a map of the U.S. and different dots like in different cities. And you can just zoom in and find um, which Muslim therapist is in which part of that country and um, what their rates are, et cetera. So there's starting to be a lot more resources out there. If I remember any more, I'll send them to you. But There's a lot more transparency now, I feel. Yeah, there is. There is. There's also Khalil Center, I think. Um, I don't know where that's based, but they have different locations around the country, I think in Canada as well. And then there's a couple of online resources, there's Family Youth Institute, there's Masiha Counseling. There's all there's all kinds of stuff and they're starting to become more sought out sought after and, you know, researched and And very accessible too, which is very good. Much, That's yeah, what I think we need accessible. when it yeah, when it comes to mental health. We need that accessibility and that transparency. And I feel like a lot of people sometimes don't even seek therapists because they feel like, oh, one session might cost me hundreds of dollars. But here in your instance, you're actually at a non for profit and you provide free therapy to these people that do come and seek and um, a lot of people don't realize insurance covers some types yeah. of therapies, which oh, yeah. is, and, yeah, is or not only that, not only that, but people will say, oh, I don't want this to be on my insurance because then somebody will find out. And it's just like it, it doesn't work that way. Like, that's not what your insurance will do. This doesn't go on your record. Your medications don't go on your record. Um, and so sometimes even teaching that, like, it's not it's not bad to put these things on your insurance. How else are you going to cover it? Um, and of course, you know, like I think the the place I work at is a little bit unique. There aren't as many places out there like this as of yet. I think there will be. I'm hoping there will be more soon. You know, there, and a lot of therapists also don't take insurance. That's something to consider. Is that you know, insurance in this country is just like insane. Like, like how complicated it is. It doesn't even make sense that it's this complicated. So a lot of therapists will opt out of it. Um, and I'm starting to understand now why, for good reason. Um, because it's just too much to deal with. And so, you know, they'll, a lot of times they will work with you. Some provide a sliding scale at the ones that do take insurance. A lot of them will take like Medicaid, Medicare, things like that. And so every single one is different. Um, you kind of just have to find out who, um, who fits with your needs the best, both financially, um, emotionally, therapeutically, et cetera. That's that's very, very helpful because I think that's like the number one step. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around therapy and therapists and how much they cost and how inaccessible they are. And you might have to travel so far to get to one. No, it's not all that. And even just like you said, you like to do like literally 30 to 40 sessions with somebody. It's and some people, I think, think the first session is the session that's going to solve all of your issues. And this is where you have to open up about all your deepest, darkest secrets. It, it doesn't work yeah, that it's way. Not, not yeah. at all. Yeah. That's not how therapy works. Um, before we end this, I want to talk about your amazing book. Um, I do. I love it. I ordered it a while ago when I once. This is how me and Sada met, actually, because I was thinking about writing a book and I'm lazy. I haven't gotten to it, <laughs> but she's so amazing. And you do not find a lot of people like her. I just messaged her randomly. I'm like, hey, I see you have a book that's published. How did you go about this? And you were so amazing. You helped me from A to Z. And you even contacted me, like, I think a month or so later, asking me for an update, like, hey, do you still need help? There's not a lot of people like no. you. And I truly, truly appreciate you. And when I read your book and I'm like, 
this is a she's such a powerful and strong woman because everything that you wrote in here was so 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 beautiful why did you decide to write it was it a form of therapy for you initially when you were younger or how did you go about this book and the idea behind the book yeah oh my gosh thank you you're so sweet um honestly it was so much like yes it was the most cathartic thing that I had when I was younger was just writing. Um, and the poems in this book, it's called Wholehearted, a collection of poetry and prose. And it was written over a period of about, I think, almost 10 years. And so the first one of the poems in there starts with, I think, the age of I was 14 or 15 when I wrote it. And they're written all the way up until I was 23. They're all jumbled up. So if you know me really well and you know my style, you can tell which ones are from like high school and below and which ones are a little bit more recent. Um, but it literally is just a collection of everything I was seeing growing up, you know, having my own identity issues, like growing up in neighborhoods and cities that were 98% like white people and just feeling always so out of place, but also in a really weird way, feeling so proud of who I was, but not knowing how to reconcile the two. And so it was, it was so weird for me growing up because I knew I was different and I knew I looked different. I knew I talked different. I knew the color of my skin was very different. But I put on this facade of being very proud of my background and who I came from. And I don't really know to this day if it was real or not. Like, I think for me, it was the only choice I had was because I was like, well, I look like this. I can't really there's no way I can blend in. Like, why try? Um, And I don't know if it necessarily made me stronger or it made me better. But I feel like it made me like very unapologetic at a young age. Um, And back then, like there wasn't as much, I think, racism that I was dealing with. And like, alhamdulillah, like I really haven't had to deal with much. But the book just covers a lot of, you know, things I saw and witnessed growing up, not only for myself mentally, but, you know, with other people and just things going on in the world. And um, just some of the hardest, rawest issues that a lot of us weren't talking about, such as mental health, such as domestic violence, Um, and just compiling all that into a book and, putting it out there for people to read. And I'm always thankful because so many people um, will just stumble across it and tell them how much it spoke to them and how much it helped them. And I'm just reminded of why it's so important to share your story and why it's so important to, um, you know, share your truth in the world, even if it's scary. Like, you know, it's been almost a, a year since I've written the book and I'm already sick of it. Like, I don't like going back and reading it oh because I'm <laughs> so critical of myself. But like, I think every writer and artist is like that. Like, we don't, we get desensitized to our own work afterwards. But, you know, someone who looks at it with a fresh pair of eyes will see it completely differently from the way we do. And I always have to remind myself of that. And so um, the book itself has just been such a blessing. And it's been so amazing to see people's responses. Um, And of course, like, you know, it's not like I've also had to, with the book, have to figure out like myself and who I am and what, what I, what I mean to myself after this book and having to distinguish, you know, it's not about me. Like I'm not here trying to get famous off the book. I'm very content with like whatever I have. And from a business perspective, sure. Like it'd be great to grow it. It'd be great to make something off of it. But like, that's not really what it's about. It's about, you know, sharing, you know, your truth and sharing some of your most painful moments and hoping that somebody somewhere will pick it up and it will speak to them in a way that you, it spoke to you when you, when you wrote it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been wonderful. And I'm really glad to, to have you know, accomplished it. I wanted to write a book since I was 10. And I think it's the age of 24, 23 that I actually got to do it. And so it was, it was wonderful. It doesn't matter when, but as long as accomplishment is an accomplishment. And I do believe our listeners will learn a lot just from your stories and and your writing. So we will definitely, inshallah, be doing a giveaway because I do think it's, it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. 
it's it's thank you it deals with a lot i mean you talk about depression anxiety suicide um domestic violence like literally everything and anything and it's very very deep you guys like i think there should be a caution sign if you're ready to really <laughs> tear up and really feel something on a very deep level this is it and this is why okay sara not to put the blame on you but this is why i didn't write my book or publish it because i'm like this is too good and my stuff is Are like you kidding no my stuff is whack. Too, no that's yeah. how i was like i was like okay i'm like maybe i'm not ready i'm like this is like legit stuff when i read it so i really recommend highly for people to buy it purchase it i know it's available on amazon it's called wholehearted by sada Boani. again um we are going to do a giveaway so look out for that what piece of advice would you like to leave for our listeners who may be dealing with mental health issues on their own and what hope do you have for our community going forward in treating this, these issues the biggest piece of advice I would say, I mean, there's so much I could say, but if I were to sum it up, I would just say for us to all be honest with ourselves, not even with each other, but just with ourselves. There's so much that we hide and put away and think that we can just get away with not bringing to light and bringing to surface. And it's literally killing us. Like it's killing us as people. It's killing us as a community. Um, and so just being able to say things and acknowledge things for what they are, whether we're struggling, whether someone else is struggling, whether someone is in an abusive marriage, whether uh, you know, we were diagnosed with a mental health disorder, like all of these things, we just need to be honest. And we just need to acknowledge and create safe spaces, first for ourselves. And once we can do it for ourselves, we can learn to do it for other people. It always begins with us. If we can't, you know, if we can't do it for us, we can't do it for each other. And then the community will continue to suffer until we're able to, you know, take these steps. I think I you know 100% that our followers will continue to learn so much from you. So where can they find you on like Instagram? Yes. So, so my username is just my first name dot last name. So Sarah dot Bawani. Um, I try and mostly use it for writing. And so hopefully you'll hear snippets of, you know, things I'm thinking about when if you read my posts. But yeah, that's my that's my Instagram page. That's pretty much the only social media I'm really active on. So yeah. And we're going to all those resources that you gave us, we're going to have those available in the notes for the p episode. So if people want to look out for that, we really, really want to thank you from the bottom of our heart, Sarah, for like talking about all this I and taking so the time. This episode. We definitely did. We learned a lot about our religion, our faith, our community, just about therapy in general and all the misconceptions that do surround us. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and for having this conversation with us. Yeah, of course. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. This was so, so nice. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, there are platforms out there to even like let us talk about these issues. And I'm really grateful to be here. So thank you guys. Absolutely. Inshallah, we'll have a part two one day Inshallah. Um, Inshallah. With, with your husband, because I know he's also um, doing the same thing or along the same yes. lines. Yes. yes, he's studying to be a chaplain and he wants to do like pastoral counseling and things along that line. So and he's um, he's really passionate about it as well. And his journey has been very, very interesting getting to where he is. So I think he'd be a great asset to this as well. Yes, awesome. we definitely need a husband-wife duo to talk yes. about. <laughs> so definitely. Thank you so much, Sara. Thank, Thank you. you so much, guys. Bye. Welcome back to our unfiltered afterthoughts. I truly enjoy this episode and I feel like there was just so much that we honestly talked about. We unpacked a lot and one of my favorite points that we mentioned was the fact that we kind of dehumanized our religious leaders, whether it is Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him or the sheikhs and, and the people higher up in the mosque. And we kind of turned to them as like these unhumanized figures in our life. So sometimes we have to take a step back. Like yes, the Prophet Muhammad did cry. Yes, you know, the sheikhs don't know everything. And, and 
we kind of have to realize that and not expect so much from the people in our mosques. But there's just so many misconceptions around therapy too because I literally always expected like if I were ever to go and get a therapy session, it would be at some expensive loft and some woman that doesn't come from the same cultural background as me awaiting me. And like you said, Zena, with her 10 cats, no <laughs> no hate against people who love cats. White marble floors, yeah. like this whole like elaborate thing and it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And she also mentioned that not everything needs to be mentioned in the first episode first episode you guys i meant like the first sitting like it doesn't have to be mentioned like you don't have to tell her all of your secrets all in one sitting because i think that is a little overwhelming so it's nice that she does it does take it like session by session and it's like she said building a relationship it's important to have that trust there and have that like communication and like with any relationship you need to build that up so obviously like you said it's not going to be like first session done and you know done and I'm fine and I'm I'm healed from all my problems. No, it's going to be a gradual thing. I mean, that's for everything in life. Everything is gradual. You learn and you have to take your time with everything. You have to definitely have some patience when it comes to this, especially when it is your mental health. And just like you said, like, we need to put so much, much, much more emphasis on mental health just as we do with physical health because anytime there's something wrong with us physically, we do run to the doctors. We do make sure. And I think it's because we find it easier to find doctors as accessible, but mental health therapists are just as accessible yeah she works at a non-for-profit place where she does help muslims specifically which is pretty awesome i know she probably helps other people too from different backgrounds but it's for muslims so there are therapists out there that can tailor to your needs and that can help you and understand where you're coming from too and you guys we live in the day and age of like the internet so it's much easier to find these people who are catered to us specifically whether it's location wise or whether it's, you know, religious background or ethnicity or gender, it's at a, the touch of our finger, we can find these people. So Literally it's a one lot Google easier. search. Yeah. And we are going to provide all of the resources in the podcast episode notes. And when we say episode notes, it is either going to be in Spotify or the Apple podcast or the Stitcher app where we do list the details of the episode. We'll have all those resources there. But I do find it really interesting that she, she's seen both sides because she dealt with domestic violence. That's she, so important. Yes, yeah. she dealt with depression. So now she knows how to help others. She was a patient and now she's a therapist. So she knows exactly like what helps and what is like not helping at all you know what that reminds me of that book i don't, I don't know if you ever read it Zane, or if you ever heard of it it's called when breath becomes air no. where he's a doctor in his hospital and he's well known and everything then he i forgot what he had if he had cancer or something like that but he just had an illness like a disease a life-threatening disease and he was gonna die and now he became the patient at wow. his own workplace at his own hospital that he was the doctor of that's so crazy so it's very interesting subhanallah how allah makes and that was a story yeah so subhanallah how Allah makes things work and how it flips for you like he gives you all that help and guidance and then now you take it upon yourself like all the tools that you need right so right. she had all the tools because she faced this head-on with her own family and everything like that and now she's the therapist and now she's helping other people and people like her are very special who always want to find ways to help others so it's yeah. amazing that she did decide to take this route and I love the fact that like she said she wanted she wants to be the type of guidance that she wished she had when she was growing up and I feel like a lot of us are choosing those paths of like, you know, I didn't have a teacher who was, you know, would stay after school with me and help me with my math lesson. So I'm going to become that teacher. So it's like it's important to learn from our past and use what 
experiences we went through in the past to help others so they don't have to go through the same things we went through. Absolutely. She taught me so much, honestly, in this episode because there was just, I don't know, I felt very intimidated when it comes to talk, talking about a therapist and everything. Because we don't talk about no, it. No, we've always talked to people who've gone and seeked like therapists, yes. but we've never actually talked to an actual therapist. So And it was really therapeutic <laughs> and i told him like i think she just has it in her because i was yeah. like i'm not gonna lie and i told her because she had to jump on a bus and go on a trip i wish we could have had her for more than one hour but it was like i was like i literally could sit here for yeah. a whole like two hour session or more because with her she knows what she's talking about yes. like, michelle is so smart so well spoken i definitely want to call her like once we hang up this and just yeah. like be like hey like this this and this is happening help me <laughs> which which brings me to the idea of how she even said you don't have to be diagnosed with depression to come no. see a therapist I mean, how many times are you going through things in your life and you wish you just had some like unbiased figure in your life just to like unload everything on? Keyword like, unbiased. For yeah, sure. because like your mom is going to be biased. Your sisters are going to be biased. Your best friend is going to be biased. It's always going to be like, oh, Dunya, it's OK. Everything is fine. But like a therapist is really going to like dig in there and find like the underlining reason you're feeling certain ways. And it's not just a conversation. This is an actual healing session where she does try to get to the root of the problem. Um, and this goes for any therapist. Hopefully you find a good therapist. Yes. But once again, thank you guys so much for listening. We really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I personally did because, I mean, again, this was the first time we actually had an, a therapist on our episode. So make sure you guys are subscribed. Please share us with your family and friends. The more we grow, the more stories we can share and the more we can help others down the road. So again, just hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review. Five stars would be appreciative. Please. And make sure we catch you guys next time. Dunya and I are going to go uh, schedule our first therapy appointment. <laughs> yes, most definitely. See you Bye. guys.